proclaimed, to hear them expounded. We earnestly ask, Lord, that you will not let us hear them in vain. We pray the Holy Spirit to anoint both the proclamation and the hearing of your word. And we pray, therefore, Lord, that as we hear the imperatives of your gospel calling us forth to a life as the church living together in holiness, in love, Lord, we pray that such words of truth will sink very deep in our hearts today, changing our hearts, sanctifying us to a greater faithfulness and obedience to you, Lord, that will tangibly manifest itself in how we treat each other as the church of Jesus Christ, our Lord. These things we earnestly and humbly ask of you for the sake of your eternal Son made flesh, Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen and amen. I invite you to take the word of God and let's open up to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and reading all the way to verse 11. Romans 12, starting at verse 1, reading to verse 11. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, and sufficient eternal word of the living God. This morning, I want to draw your attention to Romans chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, where the Word of God gives us a snapshot of what life in the gathered body of Christ 
should look like at any given season. This portion of Romans 12 is actually a subsection of a larger discussion that the Apostle Paul unpacks concerning the first place of Christian service, which is within the church. This means that where we should see the outworking of Christians serving Christ is first and foremost within the family and community of other fellow Christians. Here in Romans 12, Paul launches into this theme beginning at verse 3, where he identifies the Christian service within the church as characterized first by humility, secondly with an understanding that the church is the body of Christ, which makes every Christian members of one another, and then thirdly, there must be a recognition that God has assigned to each believer spiritual gifts which they use to edify the rest of the church. But as Christians are serving one another with those gifts God has given them, the service of those gifts must be married to godly virtues. In other words, the exercise of spiritual gifts must come through the channel of godly conduct. And this is the subject that Paul takes up in Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. At the beginning of this portion in Romans 12, namely verse 9, there is set forth in this single text of Scripture the highest virtue to be seen in every single Christian. It is the virtue of love. However, what is peculiar about the imperative Paul lays down here in verse 9 is that he's calling fellow Christians to show love to one another in a way that is sincere on the one hand and discriminating on the other. This means that Christian love must always be characterized first without the charge of hypocrisy. There is no play acting or a put on to Christ-like love. It's real. It's genuine. And then secondly, Christian love does not love everything. It discriminates between that which is good and evil. To say this another way, the love of God and His people compels them to reject whatever is sinful while calling them to embrace whatever is righteous and holy. Therefore, when the world looks into the church, the first and greatest thing they should see in the matter of our relationships with one another are a people whose love for each other is genuine and discriminating between good and evil. They should not see a people who are nothing but hypocrites, nor should they see a people who smear the lines between what is godly and what is ungodly. But rather the world should take notice that the church of Jesus Christ is a people who walk in love as they serve one another. Love that is none other than the love of Christ himself. Hence it is sincere, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. That is the supreme and essential mark of our relationships as fellow believers in Jesus Christ. But with the highest virtue of Christian conduct spelled out in verse 9, Paul proceeds from verse 10 through 13 to give a series of divine obligations which unpack in greater detail how we relate to one another as the church of Jesus Christ. You might could say that these imperatives are the outgrowth of our love for one another. In other words, if we're walking in love toward one another as Christ has loved us, then the following commands of Romans chapter 12, 10 through 13 should be the fruit of that love. These imperatives, therefore, 
should not be seen as something carried out by some elite group of Christians. Each of these obligations is simply the norm, the norm for Christians relating to one another. Moreover, these imperatives are rooted in the indicatives of the gospel. As Paul himself reminded the church at Rome at the very beginning of Romans 12, which is the reason I started at the beginning, he says, it is by the mercies of God that they are to live in the manner mandated in verses 9 through 13. This means practically that it is only because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that we can live and should be expected to live in the way we are commanded in this present passage. So with this greater context behind us, I want us to turn then to verses 10 and 11, where I want us to see that among our obligations as fellow Christians, we are called by God to maintain a mutual affection, a mutual honor, and a mutual service. And to do so as the family of God. Hence, I've entitled this study, Our Family Obligations. Our Family Obligations. So to begin with, as we look at Romans 12, 10, and 11, as we try to understand our family obligations as the church of Jesus Christ, let's consider first our mutual affection. Look with me at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. The first important thing we need to notice about this command are the two words Paul employs translated love and brotherly affection. These two terms are actually two Greek words that were used in the first century for love. The first word, which is translated here as love, is the Greek term philostorgos. This word refers to the natural and delicate affections rendered within a family and therefore not based on personal attraction or desirability. The second word Paul uses, translated as brotherly affection, comes from a word that we would be very familiar with here in the United States. It's the Greek term Philadelphia, which we would pronounce, we would pronounce as Philadelphia. This word has to do with a tender loving devotion for a brother. Now, taken together, both terms Paul uses here in this first imperative are expressing to us the natural affection called forth between Christians. However, it is an affection given not because of circumstances or personality preferences, but because of the internal kinship that exists as the result of being born again and thus being brought into the family of God. To say this more simply, and I'm going to repeat this, listen closely. Our devotion to one another as Christians is not a matter of liking, but a matter of life. Let me say that again. Our devotion to one another as Christians is not a matter of liking, but a matter of life. We love each other because of the common life we share together in Jesus Christ. And that common life makes us a family, specifically the family of God. So to love one another with brotherly affection 
can be understood in this paraphrase. Love the brethren in the faith as though they were brethren in blood. Love the brethren in the faith as though they were brethren in blood. So then the point of this first obligation in Romans 12.10 is that we are to treat fellow Christians as we would members of our own family. Because in truth, that's what we are. That is what we are. As a matter of fact, loving one another as family is the proof of our regeneration. Hence we're told in 1 John 5.1, listen to this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. What is the Apostle John saying here? Simply that if you're born again, you will love God, and not only that, you will love whoever has been born of Him. That's the driving point of that text. Our new nature in Christ connects us to a new family who share the same nature and therefore we hold the same brotherly affection for each other. Consider another similar passage in 1 John. This is my personal favorite and one I use many times. Chapter 3, verse 14. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Listen to that again. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. And the brothers is, of course, referring to fellow Christians. So... Let's put this in application, okay? 1 John 3, 14. If you want proof that you're saved, if you want assurance that you're saved, here is one stellar test right out of the Word of God. Do you love with brotherly affection your fellow Christians? You want assurance? You want to know if you're born again? Here's the test. Do you love with brotherly affection your fellow Christians? How often do we not think of that test? That's right out of the word. This is not a test Pastor Kurt has made up. This is right out of the word of God. Because notice how 1 John 3.14 begins. We know, okay, that's a, that's a matter of assurance. We know, we know what? We know we passed out of death into life which is referring to we know we're born again. How do we know? How do we know? Because we love the brothers. So do you love with brotherly affection your fellow Christians? Now let me make something very clear. I need to put a caveat here. This is not a question of whether you like them. And many of you are going, well, that's good. A lot of fellow Christians I just don't like. It's also not, listen, it's also not saying 
that you've got to be best friends with every fellow Christian. No, 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 no. To expect that would be totally unrealistic. And God's word does not demand such a thing. However, if we are truly saved, then we will have a love, we will have a brotherly affection for all believers in Christ. Why? Because they are our family. It'll be there. It'll be there. Now, one way to understand how this family love is worked out in the church is to see the way typically, not in every case, I know, but typically the way it's worked out in our own natural families. For instance, when it comes to our natural families, we're always ready to do things for them and with them that we would not do for other people. And our only explanation or reason for this is real simple. Well, their family. Is that not what we say? I mean, we just say, well, their family. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter how smart they may be, how rich or poor they are. You realize none of those things ever come into the picture. All that matters is just, well, their family. And so we give to them, we sacrifice for them, we travel at great lengths to be with them, and we do all these special things in their behalf that we would never do for people outside our family. And again, the only reason for such tender, sacrificial devotion is simply that, well, this is my family, like it or not. Sometimes we don't like it. But his family. But this same kind of tender, selfless affection that we have for our natural family is the kind of love being commanded here in Romans 12 and verse 10. It is a love for our fellow Christians that we will give for them. We will be inconvenienced for them. We will suffer with them. We will rejoice at their successes. We will weep when they hurt. We will forgive when they sin. In all such things we do in their behalf. Why? Because they are our family. The family of God. God's family. Therefore, we're commanded here in God's word to love one another with brotherly affection. John Murray said regarding this imperative, in respect to the love of our Christian brothers and sisters, we are to be marked by devotion that is characteristic of a loving, close-knit, and mutually supportive family. So there must be seen in the local church a mutual affection we have for one another that says to the rest of the world, we are the family of God. That's the witness that we're bearing to the rest of the world. Oh yeah, those people there in that place, in that church, that's God's family. They're God's family. And the first evidence of that 
Look at how they love each other. You realize that was the great testimony of the early church and the first few centuries of the early church as they were being martyred, as they were being dragged by the Roman Empire to be killed for their faith in Christ. The pagans said as they looked into the church, Oh, look at how they love one another. That was the testimony. I don't think that can be the testimony today when pagans look into the local church. But when the church was under the knife, when the church was was being slaughtered by the pagans for their faith in Christ, what stood out to the pagans was the love, the love of the brethren. Because... They didn't actually see that in their world. It was astounding, astonishing. May that be said of us. But from the command to have a mutual affection, our second obligation as God's family is that we are to have a mutual honor. Now, if you thought the first point was convicting, brace yourself. I want you to share my pain. (laughs) Okay? I want you to share my pain, all right? All right, this, this sermon is most convicting for me, all right, as your pastor. But this second point, ouch. A mutual honor. All right, looking again at Romans 12 and verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. The second imperative naturally follows from the first. If... We are loving one another with brotherly affection, then it should be no surprise, no surprise that we would outdo one another in showing honor. By showing honor, now understand, by showing honor, we are not flattering someone with hypocritical praise, but we are expressing a sincere appreciation and admiration for them. In the context of the church, this means that we've considered thoughtfully who they are and what they do for Christ in his service. And by virtue of that estimation, we honor them. But what is most important for us to see about this command, and this is where where it gets very convicting, is that Paul calls us to outdo one another in this matter. This verb translated outdo comes from a Greek word that carries the basic idea of leading or going before someone. Used as a present participle, it is the assumed reality of every Christian who loves one another with brotherly affection that they will always lead the way in showing honor to their fellow Christians. Practically speaking, before anyone can show their appreciation for us, we should be looking for ways that we can honor them first. That's the great point of the whole command. It's about getting to the front of the line, as it were, not to receive its own honors, but to show honor and respect for others. Sadly, however, this is rarely seen in the church. This is so rare. Consider what James Montgomery Boyce observed as one cause that hinders this virtue. Listen to this closely. Boyce wrote, Unfortunately, 
if we look at today's church, we must conclude that the exact opposite is more often the case. Instead of thinking about and appreciating other Christians and what they are doing, our minds are usually on ourselves and we are resentful that we are not sufficiently recognized or appreciated. Therefore, we are jealous of other Christians. Great harm has been done by such jealousy. Ministries have been seriously weakened. Churches have been split. Valuable causes have been set back for generations and sometimes for good. Wow. In addition, though, to jealousy as an impediment to showing honor to each other, we can also add a hypercritical attitude as well. A hypercritical attitude. If we were to honestly evaluate ourselves in relation to other Christians, listen to this question. Are we more critical of them or are we appreciative of them? Are we more critical or more appreciative? Which is it? Cannot be both. The truth is, beloved, it's easier for us to find fault with our brothers and sisters in Christ than, than it is to show, to show them how much we admire and appreciate and are grateful for the gifts God has given them and how they serve God with those gifts. And we really need to check ourselves here. Because if all we can see in our fellow Christians are things to criticize and never things to admire or praise for the sake of Christ, then do you understand? We're in total violation of this command in Romans 12 and verse 10. We're in violation of this. We are being disobedient to God's word. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, we're sinning and we need to repent. But I dare say, how many Christians do you think ever ask God to forgive them for not outdoing other Christians in showing honor? Hmm. I don't think that makes my sin list. It might ought to, if you're so guilty. Because this is a sin if we're not doing this. God expects us, listen, God expects us to be quick to show each other respect. To be quick to acknowledge, to acknowledge the accomplishments of others. To be quick to demonstrate genuine love by not being envious or hypercritical. But instead, we should be seen as going out of our way to lift, up, to lift up others with appreciation for who they are as fellow believers and what they do for the body of Christ. And this translates into practical action, which we can see in three different ways. First, our appreciation is realistic. Our appreciation is realistic. We do not honor others for what is not true about them. 
We do not park our judgment in reasoning at the door and begin to say things about others that is nothing more than a fiction. Now, if we do that, we're sinning, and that sin is called flattery. Flattery is a sin. It is a sin. When you, when you pretend to appreciate and admire others with things said about them that sincerely you don't even believe about them. And people who do flatter, let me tell you what's really going on there. People who flatter others are only doing that to gain an advantage over them. There are nothing but self-interest driving that and involved in that. So our appreciation of others must be sincere. It must be without flattery. Because remember what Romans 12 and verse 9 says, let your love be genuine, sincere, right? Well, then our appreciation is going to be realistic. Secondly, we recognize the value of one's gifts as being just as necessary as our own. Every member in the body of Christ is valuable and important, and the gifts God has assigned to each one of us must be honored in their rightful place. Now, why is that? It's because every gift in every fellow Christian counts for the common good of the whole church. Finally, and this is really, really convicting we must not think of ourselves as more significant than others in the church. In fact, based on Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, we're to do just the opposite. Listen to this. Listen to this imperative. Listen to this command. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you think that takes grace to do? Oh, you had better believe it takes grace. None of us can do that naturally. None of us can. When I consider that particular imperative, I cannot help but to think about George Whitfield. He was a man who, by God's grace, seemed to live and breathe this practice of counting others as more significant than himself. One of my favorite examples of this in Whitfield's life was when an eager follower of Whitfield, who is a hypercritic of John Wesley, once asked Whitfield this question. Mr. Whitfield, do you suppose that we will see John Wesley in heaven? Whitfield answered this foolish young man without hesitation. He said, no. Pause there, no. I won't see Wesley in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I'll be so far back that I'll never see him. Well, that kind of put that young man in his place. Now, that was a man counting another as more significant than himself. Astonishing. As the family of God, beloved, here's the great question. Are we outdoing one another in showing honor? 
Are we outdoing one another in showing honor? Are we taking the lead here? Or, or, and this is usually what happens, or are we just sitting back and waiting for others to give us the praise that we think we deserve? That's where most of us are. Where there is the love with brotherly affection, there will also be the eagerness to outdo one another in showing honor. This is how we relate as the family of God in a manner that brings God glory. There must be a mutual honor among ourselves. But from having a mutual honor and a mutual affection, let's consider now the final family obligation here in our text, which is our mutual service. Our mutual service. Look at me at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. All three of these imperatives center around one fundamental action. It is our mutual service to Christ. Our mutual service to Christ. There is no service that should be more characteristic of God's family than Christians giving themselves together in service to Christ. But such service, according to Romans 12, 11, is to be marked by three essential things. Number one, our mutual service to Christ must be a diligent action. A diligent action. Paul begins verse 11 with this prohibition. Do not be slothful in zeal. To be slothful is to be lazy, slack, idle, and in the context of serving Christ, it is to be always putting off those things for the Lord that you know should be done today. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's reading the word or witnessing to a friend or neighbor that you keep just telling yourself, well, I'll get around to that. But the truth is our problem is nothing but sheer laziness. We procrastinate over things that have eternal consequences. But the danger with such laziness is that it only prevents good from being done and allows evil to prosper. If a gardener leaves his garden alone, what happens? Weeds will grow. If we're not diligent in our service to Christ, making most of the time that we have for the cause of his kingdom, then our laziness will open the door for the influence of evil. You understand, listen, you do understand that you're never in a neutral place as a Christian. Never. You're never in a neutral place. You're either progressing or regressing, but you are never neutral. Never. This is why Proverbs 18 verse 9 says of those who are lazy, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys Putting this in the context of serving Christ, if we are not prompt and diligent in what Christ has called us to do but fail to fulfill, 
that service due to our laziness, then we are no different than his enemies who actively oppose him. While the motives may be different, the effect is the same. So then we must not be slothful in zeal. The term translated here as zeal is a word that actually means business. In this context, the business is certainly referring to God's business. This is about serving Christ. Whether that service is in our private devotions, toward our natural families, or in our public work within the church or the world, we must not let ourselves become lazy in the business of serving Christ. We must rouse ourselves to take action, taking God at his word for what he has promised to do through us for his glory and act on that grace now. Diligent action, therefore, is the first great mark of our service to Christ. Secondly, our mutual service to Christ must be driven by a fervent attitude. A fervent attitude. We are commanded here in Romans 12, 11 to be fervent in spirit. The key word in this imperative, of course, is the term translated fervent. This word carries the basic idea of boiling. Used here as a metaphor, it refers to an attitude that is aglow with enthusiasm. There is to be a hotness, a liveliness in our spirit as we serve Christ. The opposite of this would be indifference or apathy. How many people are there who populate churches across this land that simply don't get excited about the things of Christ? Oh, they'll burn hot for politics. They'll burn real hot for sports or maybe their children or their careers. But when it comes to worshiping, serving, or talking about Christ, well, they simply don't care. They don't care. There's no genuine enthusiasm for Jesus Christ and the cause of his kingdom. And if you think, well, pastor, isn't that just what we should see in you? I mean, you're a pastor and everything. I mean, surely that can't be expected of me. Well, as I'm checking here the context of Romans 12, um, the imperative is to all the church. It's not just to pastors. Paul wrote this letter to who? The church at Rome. Oh, it wasn't the pastors at Rome. The church at Rome. Hmm, okay. So, is it possible then, and here's the question that I wonder if any of you are asking right now. Is it possible for a Christian to lose their fervency in serving Christ? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is it possible for the fire we have for Christ to die down to just a small little flicker? Yes, it is. It can happen. Okay, well, what then are we to do if our fervency in serving the Lord has simmered down to cool temperatures, as it were? What are we to do? 
I want you to listen to the counsel of Paul the Apostle to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to this. Paul writes, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. To fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Here's the context of this passage. The fire of this spiritual gift in Timothy's fervency to use it was being stifled. It was being hindered by what? By fear. So what was, what was he to do about it? Well, Paul says he was to fan into flame the use of this gift and his own attitude in this service. And for Timothy, according to this passage in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, for Timothy this meant being reminded of what kind of spirit God had given him of not being ashamed of the gospel, nor of suffering for it. And remembering that his salvation was not based on his works, but God's immutable, eternal call in Jesus Christ that can never be taken away. Well, if we were to apply this to our context, fanning into flame our fervency for Christ to a red-hot boil again, would mean several things. First, it would mean to pray. Crying out to God day and night to incline our hearts back to Him. Do you know that every morning when I pray, that's the first thing that I pray. My first petition to the Lord is this. Lord, turn my heart back toward You. Turn my heart back toward You. Because when I wake up, I'm just going to confess, I'm, you know, I'm rather cold, spiritually. My heart is cold. And so I petition the Lord, turn my heart back toward you. So we should be praying that very thing. Secondly, we should read the scriptures with a special emphasis on those passages that center on Christ and his saving work. And then, here's a biggie, and one that's very convicting. We should pull away from those things in the world that draw us away more easily from Christ. Every Christian, especially in America, has a problem with worldliness. Every Christian, to some level. And therefore, when it comes to losing that fervency in serving Christ, we do, need to be, we do need to be actively pulling away from those things in the world that we are so easily tempted to be drawn away by. This, this, this may involve fasting. And I'm not talking about just fasting from food. Here's a novel idea. Fasting from social media. Have you ever considered that? Early in Lori and I's marriage, before there was the internet and social media, like we know today, because we're so ancient, um, we just had the theater to go to and watching TV. But because we can be, or at least I can, my wife will call me out on this, it's me, it's not her. 
a TV junkie. We fasted for 40 days from the television. 40 days, no TV. And understand this, it wasn't just that we just didn't watch TV for 40 days. No, 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 no. This was a spiritual fast. For those 40 days, we were more in the word, we were more in prayer. You see, a Christian fast is, and we'll just take this in the context of food, that if you're fasting certain meals, then at the time you'd be eating those meals, you should be in prayer. You should be in the word. So it's not just that you don't eat. No. You are feeding your spirit with the word. You are seeking God in prayer when normally you'd be filling your belly. Now, in our case, for those 40 days, the spiritual warfare that happened and occurred was, that was a whole nother thing. But no surprise. No surprise. Why? Because we were pursuing God. We were seeking God. We, we were saying, Lord, we want more of you. We want more of you. So if you're, if you're losing or you've lost your fervency in serving the Lord, then start honestly thinking about what are those things that I'm so consumed in by the world? Things that really need to be let go, that I need to pull away from. And then the last thing that I would say is this. Surround yourself with fellow Christians who are passionate for Christ. Surround yourself with fellow Christians who are passionate for Christ. Now, um, God willing, you don't have to look very far. They can be right here in this church family. But if your fervency has been lost... I can guarantee that you're probably out there somewhere alone on an island. You need to be back in the communion and the fellowship of dear saints of God who are passionate for the Lord, passionate for Christ. Surround yourself with them and let the iron sharpen iron. Let true Christian communion and fellowship together do its work. But beloved, what we need to understand in all of this, is that to revive our fervency to serve Christ requires resolve and persistence, not merely good intentions. Because you may come away from this sermon today saying, that was a great sermon, Pastor, and I really do have a desire to, to do those things and, and, and to be obedient to the Lord. And? And? What are you going to do about it? I mean, how are you going to put this into practice? Don't just have good intentions. Don't just have good intentions. But if our service is going to please Christ and be mutually edifying for the rest of the church, then it must be marked not only by diligent action, but by a fervent attitude. Finally, in our mutual service to Christ, it must always be marked by a godly aim. A godly aim. Paul's final imperative in verse 11 is simply, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. 
But the implication of this command is that in all our service as Christians, that is, in whatever we, whatever we find ourselves doing day or night, the aim of that service must always be godly. It must be in service to the Lord. This is why we're commanded in Colossians 3.17. Listen to this. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Consider also Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men. What each of these passages, passages are reminding us of is that we are not our own. We belong to Christ as His people and His servants. Moreover, there is no devotion that should be greater in our life than our devotion to Christ. Hence, it is in whatever you do, in either conversation or conduct, in everything, we are to represent the interest, purpose, and truth of Jesus Christ. Now, to add more weight to this, consider the meaning behind the term Paul uses here in our text, translated serve. Serve. That verb is describing someone who is actually a slave of another. A slave of another. But what is implied by this term is that in service to the Lord, we have no will but His. We have no will. No will but is. is no will of our own, but it's His will. The only will that matters, the only, the only cause worth keeping, and the greatest privilege we have is to be serving the will of our only Master, Jesus Christ the Lord. So when we talk about serving Christ, let's make sure that we are talking biblically. Let's make sure that we're referring to a service that is all about Christ and His glory and not about our own. Let's be sure that we are referring to a service that says, as we saw last Sunday with John the Baptist, that Christ must increase and we must decrease. A service where, according to Matthew chapter 10, we are willing to be counted as enemies by our own natural relatives if that is what devotion to Christ is going to mean. And a service... According to Philippians chapter 3, we're losing everything for the sake of Christ is worth it. It's, it's worth it. Because, you know why? Because he's worthy. He is worthy of all that I cherish since he is the greatest treasure of all. That is what it means to serve the Lord. But I do have to say this. In American society, with all of its rank individualism, this service to Christ is not rendered by lone rangers. It is a mutual service whereby with fellow Christians we encourage one another. We pray for one another. We reprove one another to a greater and more fruitful devotion to Christ. And why do we do this? How do we do this? We do this because we are a family. We're God's family. 
Therefore, we each have a responsibility and an accountability to one another to make certain that the welfare of our souls is healthy and not sick. The Christian life is not your own little private business. It's not just between you and God. We are members of one another, belonging to the same family. So how we live as Christians matters to the rest of the church. To the rest of the church. So let me ask you, in closing, when you think of the church, do you think in terms of a family? Do you honestly see your fellow Christians as being truly your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you really look at them that way? Let's tease this out. Do you love your fellow Christians with brotherly affection? Will you sacrifice your time, your talents, your treasures for their, for their welfare? And what about the bond you feel toward your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it a bond... Is it a bond that is greater than what we share with unbelievers who are our natural family? Now think about what I just asked you. Listen to that again. The bond you feel toward your brothers and sisters in Christ, is it a bond that is greater than what you share with unbelievers who are who are? your own natural family. It should be. It should be. Let me ask you a question. Which family are you going to be spending eternity with? I mean, really. Are you going to be in glory with all your natural family? No, you're not. There are members of your natural family that will be in hell forever. I'm just stating the facts. So, so then, if, if I have unbelievers who are my natural family, I have a greater moral and spiritual obligation to my fellow believers who are my forever family than I do those unbelievers in my natural family. Let me give you a verse of scripture that'll help you understand this in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, this is referring to Jesus. Jesus replied to the man who told him, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. They want to speak to you. But Jesus replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven 
is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is saying, you don't know who my real family is? It's not this family by blood. No, it's this family in the spirit. But do we think like that? Do we honestly think like that in those terms? We should be. But then what about the way we show appreciation for our fellow Christians? How many of us can honestly say that we're outdoing each other in showing honor? Are we leading the way in giving appreciation for others in the church? Do we honestly think about believers in Christ whom God has placed in our lives and the blessing they bring to us? Do we ever, <laughs> here's a novel idea, do we ever just say, thank you for your faithful service and what it means to me? Just voluntarily, thank you. In all sincerity. When was the last time any of us ever did that for a brother or sister in Christ? I'm afraid that, honestly, I'm afraid that if, that we take each other more for granted than really appreciating them for their service. And this is to our shame. That is not love. Not to mention having a hypercritical attitude and envy that is a snare to all of us, impeding any efforts to show honor. And lastly, what is the state of our service to Christ? How well are we serving the Lord? Are we diligent or lazy? Are we enthusiastic or apathetic? Are we conscious of the fact that everything we do should be done only, only as it is pleasing and honoring to Christ? Is the aim of our service a godly aim in everything? If we're single, if we're married, if we're raising our kids in our careers, school, work of the church, can we say that in all these things that they're being done to bring glory to Christ alone, are we about his cause? Or is it about our cause? And is our service to Christ carried out as a means to build up and edify the rest of the church? Is it a service done to encourage our fellow Christians to greater service as well? Beloved, the raising of all these questions in the light of Romans 12, 10, and 11 is to help us see that we have got a monumental responsibility as the family of God the Christian life is not about just your personal life. It is not. It is a life we share together with the rest of the church, and it is therefore a life that deeply affects the rest of the church for good or evil. But certainly in the light of such heavy divine obligations, may we remember this. These commands are not impossible to carry out. They're not. Rather, they're, listen, they're the expected fruit of a life that God has saved through Jesus Christ. We have the grace, therefore, each one of us as Christians, we all have the grace to love one another with brotherly affection. We have the grace to outdo one another in showing honor. We have the grace not to be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Understand this, and this I leave you on a very high, encouraging note. God will not command 
what he will not give us the grace to do. God will not command what he will not give us the grace to do. You have the grace as a Christian, as a man or woman in Christ, to do these very things. You have the grace. So let's trust the Lord now for all that we need to be sanctified in each of these imperatives as the family of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is so deeply sobering, Lord, when we look into your word and we consider with absolute honesty the truth of what you call and command us to be and do as the church of Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, we confess, humbly confess to you our sins in falling short of these said imperatives from Romans chapter 12, 10, and 11. We thank you, Lord, for the blood and the righteousness of Christ Jesus that has that is paid the ultimate and eternal penalty for all of our sins. We thank you that in Christ you have forgiven us all our transgressions. But Father, with such gratitude for your forgiveness, we also give you thanks for the fact that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and therefore we have all that we need in him, united to Christ, to repent, to flee from these sins that have been brought to light to our conscience today and the power by the Spirit to pursue greater godliness and greater righteousness and greater holiness. Father, we pray earnestly that you will so work in the hearts of us all, Lord, to look more and more like Christ our Lord, to bear his image more faithfully, to grow in his likeness with greater consistency, and especially in how we treat each other as the body of Christ. Oh, Lord, let it be said of us, even right here at Providence Reformed Baptist Church, that when the immediate world of unbelievers around us would look into this church family. Father, let it be said of us by your grace. Oh, look at how they love one another. A love that can only be explained by your saving grace that has worked to redeem us all in Jesus Christ. We plead in great earnest, Father, for these things today. We thank you for the hard things we've heard. May it humble us. 
May it bring the conviction necessary that will lead to real repentance. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.